to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EDMProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Pronounced Yeah. Pronounced Yeah is a talented producer who's released on labels like Armada, Moving Castle, and Warner. He was the collaborator on the Pluko track Breathe. Pluko we previously had on the podcast, really big single for them back in 2016. Nonetheless, I'm really excited to have him on the show. Now, in this episode, we start off with Pronounced Yeah's background, discussing how he picked up producing in high school and how he further developed his writing and production skills. He talks about why he studied music business in college instead of studying music at a conservatory and how he built up his career while completing his degree in college. We spent a while discussing how he found his distinct vision and direction for his artist project and how this vision differed from the one that he initially had when he started it. Now on the production side, Pronuncia offers heaps of advice on both production and songwriting. He discusses his ground up approach for both sound design and post-processing, offering up his favorite secret weapon plugins. He's got his DAW open and goes through a couple of his favorite project files, so it was really great to get an insight to all the tools and techniques that he's using. He also runs through his process for layering, why he's been using less sidechain compression lately, and how he creates and processes his vocal chops. Later on, he offers advice on how to fill out a mix in more minimal production, something that a lot of producers struggle with, as well as how he utilizes granular synthesis in his workflow. Now, before we slide into the interview, I'm going to play you a snippet of Pronounced Diaz's latest single. It's a track called World on Fire featuring David Blake. It's a really awesome track. Definitely go give it a stream if you like it. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM podcast with Pronounced Yeah. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Chesco, who releases under the name Pronounced Yeah. Chesco, how are you doing today? Hey, I'm good. How about you, man? Can't complain. <laughs> so to start, I'd like to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and later on music production. So I think we were going to go back to like the real start. Uh, I remember when I was like a really young kid, I found my dad's old trumpet from when he um, when he was playing in like his army band back in Italy. I found it and I was like, whoa, this is sick. Like this trumpet is so cool. And I had no idea how to play it. I was completely unable to play it. Mm -hmm. And that kind of died there. And then once I hit sixth grade, I remember my middle school was like, you have to either do choir or band. And there was no shot I was going to sing. So (laughs) I was like, all right, I'm definitely doing band. I don't play any instruments though. But I remember that my dad, I I had my dad's like trumpet from like, I didn't have it with me, but I remember like playing around with it. And I was like, you know, I might as well just learn how to use it. I like picked trumpet. My parents supported me through it and they rented me a trumpet. And that's how I really started with music, like in band. I was terrible at it. I was (laughs) like always copying other people. And then around eighth grade, it kind of changed. Because my band professor was like, you know, we're having a jazz band now and like anyone want to join, like you can get out of doing stuff if you do it. And I was like, hell yeah, like I'm totally down. So I started doing jazz and a couple of my friends were also doing jazz. And at the same time, I was also like just learning kind of about like pop punk music and like 
a lot of my friends were into it and they all played like guitar, bass, drums. And mm-hmm. I was like, man, I really want to get into this. So um, I started borrowing my friend's bass and I was learning bass for like pop punk covers with them. So in eighth grade, it really just went from like music was kind of this thing to get me out of singing to I genuinely started liking music between jazz and like pop punk covers. At that point, I was like still like not like taking it seriously. Like I was just like doing really easy riffs on trumpet and like, you know, pop punk bass. If you've ever played it, you know how easy it is. (laughs) I mean, it's super fun and like not to discredit it or anything, but like, you know, it's easy to stick with a band. But um, that summer of eighth grade. I decided I was going to learn guitar and it was just a miserable experience and it was so difficult. I dedicated just the entire summer to it. And by the end of it, I could just play a couple chords and I was pretty stoked on that. And so I kind of went into high school, like weirdly enough, being like sort of a music kid already, even though I wasn't a music kid at all. (laughs) So I was like, (laughs) I finished middle school playing like bad pop punk covers and jazz. And then in high school, you kind of like start forming an identity. And I was like, all right, well, I guess music is kind of a thing that I'm into. This is where I tell people most of my like production journey starts is in high school because I went to a really cool high school that was like a super hippie kind of communist project. It was a boarding school and they were hyper progressive like education wise. So that meant we didn't have any final exams or tests or anything. So instead of final exams or tests, we had projects and to pass the project, you had to prove that you were proficient in whatever you set out to learn. And one teacher was hosting a project on electronic music and specifically like in Ableton. I think this was my first or second year. I can't remember. But it was basically like, you know, two weeks, no finals. You just show up and you prove to me that you know how to use Ableton. (laughs) Like I'll teach you. And by the end of it, you show me that you know how to do something in it. And the teacher was super cool. He was like big on like dub and like reggae and stuff. So like he was showing us all these Ableton, like how to make dub and like... (laughs) Super cool stuff like that. So when he was offering that class, were you required to take it or did you see that? Like what kind of inspired you to be taking that? Yeah. So we had an option to do literally whatever we wanted if we could propose it and Mm -hmm. like give a justification why we should do it. So we didn't have to do anything like specific, but um, he said electronic music and that resonated with me because I feel like I should have mentioned this. Um, going into ninth grade, I kind of had my like electronic music awakening almost. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like I had just discovered UKF dubstep as a YouTube channel. I just discovered so like what electronic music meant, like the In For The Kill remix from Skrillex. I had just heard yeah. like a year before blew my mind i was like what is this world what is any of this like flux pavilion you know like when i think it was cracks was it yeah it's like the first dubstep song i ever heard so electronic Mm -hmm. music was really in the forefront of my of my mind and so when i heard that i could try and make it i was like oh hell yeah like no exams no finals all i have to do is like try and make dubstep in my head is what i was thinking (laughs) like this is perfect (laughs) yeah so you had that class. I would assume that you weren't, you know, completely proficient by the end of it. So, what were the kind oh, of those yeah, next steps for you getting deeper into uh, production? Yeah. So those two weeks were um, as fun as they were. I would have to say they really didn't teach me anything. Um, like, you know, they had good intentions, but you really—it's hard to teach. Like, you know, like a what, like a high school kid, like focus on this and like look at these sounds. Yeah. Like, you know, it's hard to focus in you just want to make sounds you you just want to like sit down and make dubstep already like i think a lot of people and i keep saying dubstep because that's like why i started but that's not at (laughs) all like what i make (laughs) you know yeah 
but yeah, you know, it's like, I feel like everyone that started production is kind of like, I just want to sit down and make a hit. And Mm -hmm. so those two weeks happened. I didn't make any hits. It was all terrible, but we weren't really graded on our final product. We were graded on how much effort we put in and safe to say, I like really fell in love with it. And I would spend so many hours like playing on Ableton. And so school, the school year ended, uh, I was in love with Ableton and I was like, mom and dad like please can you get me a copy of ableton (laughs) like i'm begging you (laughs) yeah and for my birthday or i think christmas i think they got it for me and it was just like a whole new world i had it on my own personal laptop like i didn't have to go to the computer lab and i could finally like sit down and like make music i didn't make anything good or worthwhile for a long time and that definitely has to do with like the fact that i never like focused (laughs) or paid attention i was just like (laughs) i want to make sounds (laughs) Um, yeah, I'm very fortunate that in my second year of high school, uh, a kid came who was already actually an established electronic artist. Okay. Um, he went by the name Lidsky and he was like just a master of Ableton already. And so I was super lucky that he came to the school and that he was able to take me to like not knowing anything and making sounds to like sort of understanding why sounds happen. And he let me do my first remix for him. And he kind of like just introduced me to like music, like as like a possibility. Like he also taught me how to DJ and everything. So like he really opened my eyes to the actual world of electronic music outside of listening to like UKF dubstep on YouTube, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think when, I don't know, when you're that early on with electronic music and with production, there are just so, so many unknowns, especially kind of in the time period that you were in, which I'm guessing was like 2011, 2012, as you're talking about now. It's just like, there's no frame of reference. There's no like, I mean, I guess, you know, there kind of was production schools back then, but it was nice to have somebody that's doing it successfully that can be like, oh, hey, like this is the way that you set things up. Like, I'm sure your teacher was great to teach you how to use Ableton in terms of yeah. like, here are all the different functions and plugins, but how to actually like create a track with Ableton, I think is like a different thing than uh, traditional high schools and colleges will offer in a production yeah, course. Yeah, exactly. And like, not no offense to my teacher, but like he was also definitely learning Ableton while he was teaching us. Like he was also having fun with it because like by the end of it, like he wasn't making full tracks either or anything, you know, like it w- we were all just messing around basically for two weeks. And like it really helped having someone who actually like knew like I'm going to make a track, finish the track and then submit the track and like release it. Like it really, you know, changes everything. Like, as you said, during that time period, it was kind of all up in the air. (laughs) Yeah. So you had him kind of helping you out with production, probably steering you in different directions when it came Mm -hmm. to, um, your career. So at what point did you start to think about, I want to be releasing music? So like during high school, I went through, um, a stint where I was like, I found my passion. It's EDM trap. <laughs> when I first heard yeah. the uh, Flosterdamus remix of Original Dawn, of I was like, this is what I need to do. Like, this is it. <laughs> and uh, the kid who taught me everything, he was super nice. And like, he would play songs that I sent him sometimes, like at school parties. So I could like see it in a live context. So it like really cool. And that's kind of when I had the first ideas of like, oh my gosh, this could be like a thing. But um, yeah. as like I reached like junior and senior year, my mindset definitely shifted a little bit away from it. Like I definitely got absorbed in other stuff and just like more like personal relationships and like just being a high school kid. It wasn't really until my first year of college that I really like sat down and was like, I want to take this seriously. So what did you end up uh, going to school for, for college? So I actually ended up going to school for music business. 
So uh, it's this, it's like this program up in Syracuse called Bandier and it's like really wonderful. And there's so many amazing people that I met through the program. And I decided that because like, kind of like when I was going from middle school to high school and I had to sort of pick an identity and I went with the most recent thing, which was music. I was kind of like, well, what have I been doing the most of in the past four years? Music. (laughs) So I might as well keep up with that. But basically like I knew I didn't want to go to like a conservatory or anything. I wanted like more... I was like afraid of committing fully and like being like, I want to go to like a conservatory and be like a professional musician. That that thought scared me. So I thought like if I went and studied business also, like yeah. that would give me a little bit of flexibility. <laughs> now, I think a lot of people struggle with that, that don't come from like a traditional musician creative background, just to say I'm an artist and I want to be an artist. Like I struggled with that for years to yeah. be able to say that. So, and that's like a big decision too, like going to college for music specifically at a conservatory. It's like, you're kind of boxed in and it's, you know, really sink or swim yeah. at that point. It's super scary. Like the fact, like still today, you're right. Like it's still scary being like, oh wow. Like I'm an artist. Like this is my career. Like it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's still weird today to like say. So kind of putting yourself back into college, you said that um, you kind of decided, you know, in your first year or so, you're like, actually, this is kind of what I want to be doing. How early Mm -hmm. on were you with your productions at that point? Were you releasing yet? Were you just starting to release or not too close yet? So I wasn't like really officially releasing like up until college. I had a couple throwaway projects from high school when I like wanted to do the whole EDM trap thing. Nothing like legit, nothing serious. So it was like all really new territory to me. And it was all happening during that time period on SoundCloud where like future bass was like just becoming a genre. Like everyone was calling it like future. So I saw these collectives and I was like, all right, like this movement is super cool. I love the aesthetic because I think it was also like um, like the aesthetic was all like nature and like Japanese lettering and like yeah. like names with no vowels. <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, this is so sick. Like, I love this. I want to get into this. Yeah. I want to join a collective. And that's when I started releasing, when I found a collective and started sending them my music. So one of the first releases that I heard from you was Breathe, which you did with Pluko, mm-hmm. which still today has just a tremendous amount of streams online. Yeah. So was that ridiculous? Um, those kind of collective <laughs> releases, were those before or after Breathe came about? That came a little bit after, after the first releases. So when that release came out, I think immediately got a ton of traction. What yeah. were you thinking about in terms of trying to follow that up in terms of like, should I even be in school for music <laughs> business? Kind of walk me through that. So it was a crazy time period. Cause like it was basically, there were three of us. It was me, Sam, and then other Sam, like Pluko Sam. And then this other Sam that went by the name Tommy Pax. Okay. Um, and after I had like finished with my collective and stuff, like the f- first collective I worked with that helped me out, they were called Orbitual. I learned a little bit about how SoundCloud worked. And then I met Tommy Pax, who introduced me to Sam Pluko. And we okay. were all kind of just like putting out music, supporting each other, like follow gating each other. And I sent the idea for Breath to Tommy Pax one day. And I'm like, yo, like, what do we do here? And he's like, I'm giving it to Pluko, Sam, like, and you guys are going to make a hit. (laughs) And so he set it all up. And like, you know, we had no idea. Like we were, I think I had like 3000 SoundCloud followers. He had like 3000 and we thought we were like, you know, kings at that point, like 3000 followers. We made it, you know? (laughs) So Tommy Pax, Sam, he set it all up. And I was actually talking with another friend about getting it on his collective because he had a collective on SoundCloud with like 10,000 followers. But um, they kept pushing back on us. And eventually Sam was just like, we're dropping this solo, like no collectives. We got this. And then he got to connect to Trap Nation. 
And then it just, you know, the numbers just started piling on and we had no idea like what was going on. And like, I, I can't speak for, for Sam Pluko. Cause like, you know, he had a, I feel like he had, might've had a different experience than me probably. But, um, yeah, we just had, I personally just was like, whoa, like I have yeah. no idea what's happening. What's going on. <laughs> I think at that time things could spiral so quickly off of just SoundCloud. Like I've had that conversation yeah. um, on air and off air a ton where it was just like you in 2016, you could kind of just throw something up and obviously it had to be quality enough, but it could just grow at yeah. a crazy ex- exponential rate. Yeah. Cause like places like Trap Nation still had a ton of like influential reach and I mean, they still do today, but I think SoundCloud and like the YouTube channels definitely have lost a little bit of that influence on the yeah. scene. But yeah, no, exactly. Back in 2016, they were you know, you could throw something up and next thing you know, you have a full career out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. So that came out, you followed it up with some like vocal, with the vocal version and then with some remixes to that vocal version. Kind of from there, what were your next steps to continue growing off of what that record was for you? I kind of feel like embarrassed to say it, but I feel like we didn't really have a plan. <laughs> uh, I'll be honest, like during, while I was in college, I definitely like messed up a lot of opportunities following that track and i definitely wasn't sure what i wanted or where i was going yeah Um, because it's important to note i feel like with the ye project like part of the whole project was being kind of anonymous and not associated with it like i didn't keep my name anywhere on it i didn't put my face anywhere on it and i almost wanted it to be like difficult to find almost in a way like um and so when you have that mindset going into it like I kind of want to be not like very like known or seen. And then you get very seen, you kind of have to shift your whole mindset and it kind of like ruins your idea of like, well, I picked a name that's kind of like hard to find, like, but it also represents what I wanted when I started this. Like I wanted to be about the music, but then it's like, now I actually want to like, you know, do this full time. So lots of conflicting emotions led to me messing up um, a fair amount of opportunities post breath. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it was almost a good thing because it really let me learn what I wanted and where I wanted to go. And I feel like today, like in the past year since graduating, I just like have really understood what I want to do. Kind of talk on that. I feel like that's something that I've personally really gone through in the past few years, figuring out, you know, what the Connor that started production wanted in terms mm-hmm. of the music and the brand and then also the career and then what I want right now in 2020. So I think it'd be interesting yeah. just to hear what those things are from you going into college and then now to where you are now. So like, you know, that idea, like when you make music, when you're starting and people know you and you show it to your friends and your friends tell you it's great, but it's definitely not great. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> that was my least favorite thing in the world. I was like, <laughs> I really hate that. Like, I want people to tell me music's good because it's good, not because their friend made it. And I was lucky that I did have friends in high school that were really honest with me and were like, yo, this sucks. And like, I appreciate them so much for that because that's the nicest thing a friend can ever tell you is that your music's bad because yeah. they trust you enough to know that they care. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah, going into college, it was like make music that people like because of the music and because of nothing else. Like none of the branding, like none of the face, none of the name, like no one knows who I am. Like if you like it, you like it and you listen to it because you like the music. So that's when it's that's like going into college. And then breath was like, uh oh, like I need to put my face on this. Like if you notice, if you go to the YouTube um, page for breath on Trap Nation, there's no socials for my page like still to this day because I was like that's what I wanted I was like I don't want any socials I don't care like I don't want people to come find me and looking back I'm just like man that was so stupid like why did I do that (laughs) but at the time it's what I wanted yeah I mean I think there's this like 
arrogance that a lot of artists can have that you need to at least get under control. Where yeah. It's this idea where you're like, you know, my music's good enough that they're going to come find me and I'm going to like print yeah. out these records and I'm going to put them in this weird record store. And like, if they want to find me, they got to go there. It's like, you got to <laughs> yeah. meet people halfway. And, you know, unless exactly. you're like a Banksy generational talent that people will like, you know, try the best to find yeah. your paintings. Like it's just not realistic, especially, you know, you know, looking up to the way that your favorite artists got to where they are now. It's not only not realistic, it's like also kind of like unfair to the consumer, you know, it's like, yeah. you want people to hear it, you want them to enjoy it. Like, why am I going to go hide it and make it hard to find, you know? So you kind of took a break after your album in 2018. So first, just kind of talk mm -hmm. about what that album was for you in Trails. Yeah. So going into 2018, we definitely like we're stringing together singles, releases. We're meeting great people. Um, we had a lot of cool like opportunities. We played a lot of cool shows. But we decided like we needed to do something a little more cohesive. Like we couldn't just keep doing these one-off singles, remixes, and like yeah. shows and stuff. So um, I was talking with my management, and we talked about like putting together a project, like the first project. Basically, the project was kind of tough because um, if you've been following my discography, you know that my music's been pretty much all across the spectrum of melodic bass. <laughs> yeah, um, I've even had some like just straight up trap releases on like on labels in the past it's fun and like it was super fun but it was kind of like yo we need to pick a direction we can't just keep releasing whatever we want so trails was the result of like focusing in and like trying to create the first concept of a brand so we kind of took together all my influences like we went back to like we went back to like oh like why did i start making music like in high school and stuff we took a, all the nature inspiration because um i feel like i forgot to mention this but my high school was like also up in the woods on a farm so it was super like nature yeah. And that's like was a big inspiration and drive for all my music. So we harked back to that. We like got that back in there. Um, we found the sounds that I really thought would be best in a project. And it was like, you know, that kind of chiller, like melodic bass, future bass sound. And it, it was a really great experience putting it together and like putting it out. And then immediately after, like being able to take that to Forest and like other shows uh, that summer of 2018. Yeah. So I kind of want to go more into that idea of deciding what the kind of style and brand of your sound is going to be. Cause I think mm -hmm. that's something that a lot of artists are struggling with because, you know, they might have tracks that are kind of all across the board for dance music. Like for you, you had like house stuff, you had dubstep, you had melodic bass. What ultimately made you decide like, okay, this, um, like emotional bangers, whatever you want to call it. I know that's like <laughs> yeah. kind of what you uh, dub it as now, but what mm -hmm. made you, what have led you to deciding that this is going to be the style that I'm going to go forward with? So as you mentioned, emotional bangers, yeah, that, that kind of represents the new age, like the new Armada, like wave yeah. of that, um, where we're taking the sound to the future, but it's definitely like, um, you can kind of hear where it comes from in trails, but it's definitely not the trails vibe. And it's always really tough to pick like a brand or a sound. Cause you kind of have to like, um, like the way I put it was like, if Bon Iver put out the best pop punk song ever, like no <laughs> one would care, you know? Yeah. Like even if it was the best pop punk song, it wouldn't make sense. Yeah. So it's like, you got to make, you got to have a consistent sound. And that's something I've always struggled with. And a lot of people struggle with. So uh, trails was really good, a good practice to get, to, like, get that down. And like, this is how I felt in 2018 and leading up to 2018. And that encompassed my mind at that time Yeah. and where I was. And it felt great to like, put that out. 
But then after that, you, you'll notice there's a big pause in music. Yeah. And that's because we definitely had a moment to reflect and be like, well, let's think about this. <laughs> like, where do we want to keep going? Yeah. So talk on that. You had about like a year, year and a half hiatus between your album and as far as I can see on Spotify, it looks like there was nothing up until your first release in 2020 with Armada. So like walk me through what your 2019 was like then. So it was, it was, um, definitely tough. Cause like, we're still like making music all the time, you know, and as an artist making music and not releasing it is so painful, but yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the move, you know, it's like, it's what you got to do sometimes. So we released trails. We let trails breathe a little bit. I'm very happy with how trails went. We did like an independent release. And at first I was kind of like all caught up in the numbers, but then the more I've been able to distance myself from that, the happier I've been with the body as a whole. But it was kind of like dealing with that post trails. Like, are we happy with where we're at? Do we know what we're doing? And this was like right about the time I was finishing up college. Yeah. And I was kind of using that as a crutch, as an excuse to like focus less on music and be like, Oh, but I have to focus on academics, you know, like, um, I have to get good grades, which isn't true. You don't have to get good grades. <laughs> <laughs> I found that out the hard way. Yeah. Um, so basically we took that pause and we really wanted to be like, what am I making? Where am I going? And we didn't want to just keep putting out one-offs and like doing independent releases or like official remixes. Cause you know, you do too many remixes, you become a remix artist. Um, if you do too much independent stuff, people might start stop following, you know? So we had to say like, what do we want to do? Like, are we going to do this? Like, what are we thinking? So we just started building up a huge backlog of sounds that I really thought represented like what I wanted to do. In 2020, the backlog finally started getting released as we kind of settled in on this sound of like emotional bangers, like mm -hmm. this kind of new vibe. Cool. So I want to talk about your uh, latest release that you have with Armada World on Fire that you released a few weeks ago. I think um, I'm going to play everyone a preview of it so that they can check it out. But I think this would be a great thing to kind of slide over into production on because there's a couple things that I really want to dive into there. First off, in kind of your most recent string of releases, your bass and your drops are always just kind of front and center. So talk mm -hmm. me through what some of the plugins that you're using for your bass design, some of the, uh, in terms of the synthesis, in terms of the post-processing. And if you just want to use the World on Fire bass as an example, go for it too. Yeah. So I actually have the World on Fire project opened right here, right in front of me. Um, Perfect. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the World on Fire bass is definitely like a bass that I've been using a ton in all my tracks, and you're going to hear it a lot more in my future releases. You'll be really surprised to hear how simple it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, it consists of two parts, the sub and the top. And I'm like, the sub, you know, it's, you know, a sub. And then the high is literally just this preset I found a long time ago. That's just a single saw wave. So like, if you've been making future bass, you've been making saw waves. Like, yeah that was a big thing. Everyone was making them. <laughs> yeah. And this is just like a simple five unison saw wave, um, with a ton of white noise on top. So I combine the two, the sub and the white noise saw, and I make them play the same notes and you get that nice thick, like huge, like low end that like shakes everything. And then the crunch at the top that makes it sound like it's almost like breaking your speakers or distorting a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So are you using anything in post for distortion outside of the synth? Uh, the whole thing I'm doing, well, the top I'm doing fully just in Serum and then EQing in Ableton. Okay. 
And the sub, I'm doing Camel Crusher okay. is the only other thing. Any advice in terms of sidechain compression? Because I feel like it's always just kind of locked in tight when it comes to your baselines, especially yeah. in the most recent tracks. I think the groove is so important, especially if you're not in working in like a four on the floor where it's pretty easy to dial that in. Mm -hmm. So like whenever I do sidechain compression at the start, like I think it's obviously the like one of the number one tools in any producer's toolkit to open up your low end. Um, I actually, in most recent productions, have stopped uh, like having it completely cut out when the kit comes in and I'm just like layering everything, which okay. is a big like, I feel like if you're learning how to produce, it's like a big no, like don't do that. Yeah. But in my experience, like the more I've been producing, layering kicks over the subs like at the same time and just having them hit together can it can sound terrible but it can also sound really hype <laughs> like, yeah it'll sound really big <laughs> i mean i think it's you important know? to like take all those rules that there are with production like never have any stereo width below 150 hertz and just think yeah. about them for yourself you're like ah, like i don't know like it sounds a little bit weaker and like i'm not you know playing this out at like sound nightclub or something like that but just kind of mm -hmm. like pushing the envelopes and being like does this really apply to me and can i at least get a little bit closer and find something in between what people absolutely say you shouldn't do and just throwing the you know the rule book yeah away. no exactly like I, I always say like you know start with what's like quote unquote right like start there but then also like go outside of it or else like because if you keep following like what everyone says to do you'll never really you know unlock yeah. new sounds so to speak <laughs> totally so one other thing about uh world on fire that i want to talk about is that kind of plucky lead sound that you have in there it just mm -hmm. doesn't sound like something that is completely dry and stale out of a sample pack or preset so maybe it is based off your saw base but um kind of talk on the way that that came up so yeah so a lot of my production like i'm not a great sound designer so i do um my sound design consists of taking presets and taking them apart and then rebuilding them and like you know seeing where they end up yeah because <laughs> sound design i think is its own expertise um so like as you said like um this this is a preset but i did a ton of post-processing on it <laughs> so i'll just run you through it right now if, yeah, go if for you it. so basically the initial preset is just like two huge saw waves um 16 unison each and then i'm running it through trash I'm not convinced that there is a way to understand trash because I've tried <laughs> and trash is such a weird beast. Like I can't, I can't figure it out. So I just run through and turn knobs until I like it. Yeah. And it's so great for making cool sounds. So it goes the huge saws into trash, into um, EQing, like cut all the lows, uh, big side chain compression, big reverb, and then a couple filter swells here and there. I think that's an important thing to talk about too, just listening to your music, the amount of kind of micro development that you have in your sections where, mm -hmm. you know, even if you're keeping things simple on the production standpoint, in terms of there's not 50 things going on at once, I feel like you do a really great yeah. job pulling things away, bringing things in occasionally, just so that there's like just enough development to move forward. I think, yeah. um, lose the child, I think are just the Kings at that, where it's just like oh, just yeah. enough in every freaking <laughs> section to keep it yeah. interesting. And like, you know, I think fully agreed. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm always a huge proponent of simpler is better because you know, if you can make it sound good, simple, then that's like ideal. Cause if yeah. you get too complex, it can get like confusing, throw people off. But you know, if you can make something simple, sound good, that's, that's badass. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Any other, um, tools that are pretty important to your production workflow? You've mentioned serum, um, gotta love camel crusher trash too. anything else that you can kind of think mm -hmm. of that all those distortion plugins. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See in, in this track, 
this track actually came together so quickly in one session so like it's not the most uh intense production wise i'm trying to look through right now see if there's anything cool but um no my go-tos are just like recently like just doing a lot of production on the drums like i've been focusing in a lot on that trying to get like really unique percussions um not in this track but in a couple ones you'll be hearing soon hopefully i've been messing a ton with granular synthesis which i can't recommend enough yeah so with granular synthesis um what are you generally using for that like i love the max for live granulator 2 in ableton i know a lot of people use that okay yeah yeah granulator for the one for max for live um also like i think portals considered granular synthesis i don't know but i've been messing around with that like throwing it over stuff I don't, it took me way too long to get Portal. I got it about two months ago and it's just so easy to get creative textures from anything that you have in your track. It's like cheating. Oh yeah. It's, yeah, it's like cheating. It's incredible. Like it's probably my favorite plugin. I've been using it everywhere. Cool. So you kind of talked about you coming into your own with a style that you have right now. Given that, do you have like a typical workflow that it looks like at this point for you? A lot of these tracks have vocals. Are you starting with those? Are they getting sent to you after? Kind of talk through that process. Yeah, so it's definitely a mix. Um, the sound we've kind of settled on, the emotional banger sound, kind of came to be after a lot of like mixes and sets I've been doing. I realized my sets and mixes gravitated towards this type of. If you ever listen to like any of my mixes or any of my sets, you'll get a full idea of like the sound we're we're feeling with the project and yeah. the sound this project wants to be. Um, and so the workflows kind of reflected that. Um, I definitely make stuff with intention. The stuff you'll hear through the project is stuff that's made with the intention of being heard like in a live setting. So yeah, obviously making the longer intro uh, and the long outro. Um, but the vocals, like as you said, a lot of them have vocals. And it's a little bit of a toss-up. Um, I love producing to vocals. Like even if I don't have vocals, I'll find something and I'll start writing chords to it and then I'll get rid of it and then finish the track. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of a toss up. Like sometimes I'll finish a track and then we'll send it out for vocals or sometimes I'll get sent vocals like for world on fire. We actually got sent these vocals from a good friend and we built the track around that. So it's kind of a toss up, but the general idea is like, I try to, you know, also general idea. I got to say, I think it's a great idea to always switch up how you start producing. Like totally. if you always start the same way, your stuff will always end up sounding the same way in my opinion. Yeah. But that being said, generally I always try to like lay down some chords right off the bat, like piano, guitar, synth, just anything, just lay down the chords right away. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so crucial just to have like a mood or a vibe going in to your production. Not that you don't have to, but I feel like like you can start with drums, but I don't know, just like having something where like, okay, I want this to be like an uplifting track that makes me feel like I'm like outdoors in the fall, like having something Mm -hmm. like that and then running with it, I think can just put more purpose and function behind your music that create that you're creating rather than just like demo 12.5 feature bass before. (laughs) Like it just, yeah, it's a pet peeve of mine when people like don't put as much intention. Yeah, exactly. And and the chords, you know, like, as you said, they do set the mood, they set the vibe and like, and there's so much to be done with voicings that like, you can have the same chord progression and they can sound completely different just on how you voice them. So it's always nice starting there and then being like, this is how, like, this is how I feel right now. These chords reflect that. And now I can finish the track out. So kind of on that note, you were earlier mentioning how you like to keep things a bit more straightforward and Mm -hmm. kind of simple with your productions. I feel like a lot of producers, when they try to do that, they really struggle to fill out their mix to make it as full and as big as some of their favorite artists. So any advice kind of on that front? Yeah, I struggle with that a lot too. Um, And I realized two things. 
One thing was one thing that actually like, you know, I talk to people a lot and people send me like works in progress. And one thing that I noticed that I used to do and a lot of people do is right off the bat, people just blast their subs so loud that they make the mix disappear and there's no dynamics and it all just sounds muddy and nothing can stand out. Um, it took me a long time before I started actually cutting everything sub 30. Yeah. Like I don't keep anything under 30 Hertz anymore. I'm just like, you can't hear that. Like if you're at a club, you'll still hear the really like bumping bass. Like unless you're like, I don't know, unless you're like really know what you're doing with intention. If you're like noisia level, like talent of stuff, like anything under 30 is just really hard to mix and like, get rid of that. Just get rid of anything under there and yeah. clean up your mix tenfold just with that simple thing. Because it's just so much headroom that you're saving with all those elements exactly. that are down there because it's just so precious when it comes to everything kind of sub 50 or 40. Yeah. And then everything else can stand out. And it's just like, wow, I just unlocked a whole new level of my track just by getting rid of stuff that I couldn't even hear. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And then the second thing, um, which took me a while to learn, but I copied this from a lot of people I listened to was just adding white noise when it feels empty or pink noise or whichever, just like throw in noise. So like in world on fire, there's a ton of noise on the drop. Like the, the whole top base that goes on top of the sub is essentially just noise. Like, as I was saying, like it's a saw and then white noise (laughs) blasting. And in my opinion, that just like makes it sound so big and like full. It's just like, there you go. You just filled up the top half of the spectrum, the bottom half's full, and all you did was throw in noise. <laughs> yeah. I think it's like a great way to kind of avoid overproducing just to go, you yeah. know, focus on getting those core elements as great as you can. And then if you need one more thing, kind of sneak something in on the back end that has that effect that you need. Exactly. And as a bonus, when you play it live, if you get air cannons, it sounds cool because they match up. <laughs> match up. I love it. Yeah. Cool. So one of the uh, more recent tracks that you released was a track called Wait For You, which I really like. I want to mm-hmm. ask you about the vocal processing that you have um, and the vocal chops that you have in the drop. I think a lot of people approach format shifting and pitch shifting in different ways. So what are kind of the general mm-hmm. things that you use when it comes to repitching vocals? So generally when I'm repitching vocals, uh, funnily enough, I actually started the project with one of the core beliefs of the project being vocal chopping. Like if you go back through my first tracks, it's all vocal chops. (laughs) Um, So I spent a lot of time with that. And initially I started with just like Ableton's warping, messing around with like the beats warping, the complex warping, the complex pro warping, just like trying all of them out and then pitching them literally manually and cutting them manually. Yeah. I feel like that gave me the most control. So that was my first approach to like pitch shifting and like chopping vocals Mm -hmm. was just like the really just like I'm going to do it like literally get in there one by one, choose each vocal. And that's time consuming, but I also think it's probably the best way to get the result you want. Um, And then as I kept producing, so around trails time, I started doing um, sampler within Ableton, like letting Ableton slice up the sample and then playing it like a keyboard. And most recently, um, I don't know how I'm so late to the party, but one of my friends convinced me to get Little Alter Boy. That's pretty much my only, my go-to now for all all vocal shifting is little alter boy. <laughs> totally. Cool. So kind of catching us up to um, what things are looking like for you right now. Obviously, with the pandemic, things are a bit shifted. But what does your current situation look like in terms of uh, like producing, working, school, I believe is over at this point. So kind of walk me through that. Um, so yeah, school finished last year. Uh, great, great experience, but um, way happier being able to do music full time. I'll be completely honest. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. Um, it's very stressful, but it's very cool. 
the plan, the pandemic, you know, like really, you know, it's like everyone kind of had to shift their plans. And mm-hmm. so I, like we signed with Armada back in August of 2019. Um, and we kind of built our rollout over the course of 2020. And so it was definitely kind of tough, like being like, oh, like our whole plan of like put out songs, play shows, promote them. Yeah. <laughs> like watching that kind of all go out the window. Uh, it kind of, you know, it hurt a little bit after a lot of planning, but you know, everyone's been super amazing and we've really got back on track and there were moments where it's like, oh, like, damn, like what's the point? Like <laughs> everything's yeah. messed up, but it's, it's looking, even though shows won't be coming back anytime soon, I don't think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we've started, we've done, um, we're getting ready for like virtual sets, yeah. uh, doing more mixes to like give to people directly, like just like, yeah, stuff like that. We really just kind of changed our plan and the pandemic, you know, it, it, what's the word? It like shook things up, but, uh, I'm very fortunate that I still get to just like make music all day and that yeah. everyone at the label and on my team is doing fine and that we can keep just trucking through this. Yeah. I think it's so tough when, at least for you personally, and I kind of have the same thing for me. I'm like, things are worse than they were for me than previously, but relative to how they could be in 2020, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm working, I'm healthy. So is everyone around me. So it's just like, yeah, important to kind of focus on those things, especially when, you know, at least for you, I'm sure you've been, you know, looking forward to this. You got that deal. It finally, those tracks are getting released after a year (laughs) and it's not fully to what it could be, but you're still kind of, you know, positive about what you can make of that, which I think is awesome. Exactly. Like you have a few days, like I'm sure every artist and I I, trust me, I have a lot better than some artists that like had all their, you know, their shows wiped out. Yeah. But it's like, I think as an artist, like everyone just kind of had that moment where they're like, oh shit, like, you know, like everything's different now. Like you can have your moments of like, this sucks. I'm sad about it. But then, you, you know, it's not good to stay in there. And like, you're exactly, you're healthy. Like if you are healthy, you're healthy and you still get to work. And like, what more could you ask for? You know? Totally. So I'm kind of curious at this point, it seems like you've got a decent amount of tracks that were kind of piled up for your Armada releases. And I'm guessing that the tracks that you're making now probably won't come out for a while. So what is kind of your mentality going to the studio right now, especially with shows not really being a thing, um, at least for like another couple months and with, you know, kind of having like a backlog already kind of set up. (laughs) So yeah, I talk about this like every day, like I bug my (laughs) girlfriend every day with this because I'm like, ah, like this song, I finished it a year ago. It's coming out now. Like this isn't representative of like where I'm at. Um, (laughs) But I'm really happy with what I made a year ago. It's like, it's definitely like jarring, like being like, wow, I finished a song so long ago and it just came out. Like, that's so weird. I was a completely different person when I made this song. Yeah. But you get, you get used to it. And then you kind of realize like, that's just how the industry like works. Like if you're releasing songs through like the label process which is like a really wonderful process um you do have to expect that there will be time that you have to wait and you get used to it and so whenever i go and make music now i kind of well before the pandemic and stuff i loved making music with the intention of like would this like bump live like would this be sick to like play out and like can i play it out can i put it in a mix and then we kind of get to like tease it out with that concept of like live slash in mixes yeah. And then we get to hear it come out in like a few months. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like it, it's kind of weird at first, but you get used to it pretty quick. Totally. So you recently graduated from school and you're kind of doing the music thing full time. I would imagine that you're trying to find that balance between, you know, working on your project and also being a human outside of that. So walk me through yeah. what that kind of you know process has been like so far. 
So I'll say like uh, with the pandemic, it's definitely been easier to just be closed at home all day, locked <laughs> up working on music because yeah. I'll be completely honest. That's kind of what I was doing before, um, which is not healthy at all. And I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah. it's not the move. But um, yeah, like, you know, when you have school and when you have like structure, you definitely like feel more human. Like, oh, I have to be somewhere at some time. But once you do the transition to full-time music, you kind of don't have that anymore. And it's kind of mm. up to you to make that happen. Yeah, uh, It took me a while to realize that. but um, And I still struggle with it. Trust me, I struggle with it every day to just, like, not wake up and, like, just, like, play video games or something. Or, like, you know. Yeah, I think one thing kind of on top of that is a lot of times when you hear advice from your favorite artists they're struggling through those same exact things and that's how they know it. So I think like, you know, if I'm teaching people about like goal setting and tracking and all these things, Mm -hmm. it's not because I'm great at it. It's because I've like dealt with these same issues and I'm trying to get better myself. So like, don't feel guilty if you're not, you know, in Ableton every day for five to 10 hours. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, Also just like, you know, stuff like that takes practice also like practicing how to live a healthy life. Like that doesn't just like happen. You got to practice that. Like, like for example, um, my girlfriend recently got me into exercising and you know, like you gotta, you gotta practice like getting into the mindset of like, I gotta go like, you know, use my body for like (laughs) 10 minutes. I can't sit in a chair all day. (laughs) And then you got to practice like eating healthy. Like that all takes time and it takes work and it's not going to happen right away. But um, you just can't get lost in in Ableton, as I say. Like you just can't get lost in that for ten hours and just disregard everything else. Totally, I think it's essential to have a balance and to have an input so that your output can be something unique. Yeah, so also, like when you're, yeah, go ahead. Because because like also when you're in college, like it, you can be in Ableton all the time because you have stuff that forces you away from it. So like that's fine, you know. Like <laughs> yeah, it's when you no longer have stuff that pulls you away from it that you have to like pull yourself away from yeah. it. <laughs> Cool. So a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. We've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. So what advice would you give to somebody who's just starting out with producing to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music? Ooh, that's tough. Um, (laughs) I think there's two ways to approach this question. One side is the music side and one side is the like commercial success side. And I think you kind of have to like understand that those are different right off the bat. Um, the music side, my go-to is, you know, we all did it and now's the best time to do it. Just like go watch YouTube and live streams. Cause you'll learn more than anything else. Yeah. Like watching your favorite people produce and like watching people explain it. Um, and you know, balance that with a lot of experimentation on your own. Like don't just follow others also experiment a bunch. And that's like a more on the music side to develop yourself musically, like watch from others, watch from experts and also experiment on your own. Yeah. But what's crucial also, I think if you actually want to take this to career, something that I think everybody struggles with is like branding is massive. Like you need to be recognizable. You need to stand out outside of your music. Like as much as it's unfortunate to say, you need to stand out and like be someone outside of the music. And that's kind of definitely, I think, a a big hurdle to pass when you're starting to make music. You're like, oh, I just want to make music. But like you also have an image that you need to maintain. I think people love to connect with brands and they love to connect with an artist more so than just the music. You know, I think there's people that can do it like Tycho, you know, he has cool artwork, but I don't really know who he is, but he just has great tunes. But I think those (laughs) artists are so few and far between. Yeah. And and if you are that artist, like, you know, you are, and you don't have to worry about that. Like if you're a Tycho type, like, you know, you are, and that's great. And like, 
this doesn't apply to you. But I think for most of us, you have to accept that people want a face. People want recognition. They want to recognize, like when they see your new song, they don't want to know what it is, but they do want to know what to expect, you know? Cool. So to kind of wrap things up, we've got your um, latest release, World on Fire, that everybody should go check out. Outside of that, what's going to be coming up for you for the next few months? Oh, man. Uh, We got one of my favorite. So I I say this for all my releases, one of my favorite tracks. Uh, I got to work with one of the most talented musicians I've ever met in my life. I won't spoil anything, but there is a track coming out um, next month, I believe. That is just definitely one of my favorites that I got to do with my favorite musicians. So that's something to look forward to in the project. More mixes always. Uh, and hopefully, if shows start back up, hopefully we'll get to be able to take emotional bangers on the road some one of these, uh, <laughs> one of these days. <laughs> Sweet. I love that. Well, with that, we'll wrap things up for this episode. You can find Pronunciaz music in the description of this podcast, so go give it a listen as this episode is just about over. Chesco, it's been great chatting with you. Appreciate you being on the show. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for having me.